Coming up on Stu Does America, we approach the last debate by debunking the BS claims before they even happen. Michael Schellenberger will walk us through the climate alarmism. And we have more on the Jeffrey Tubin incident. Whatever you do, don't zoom in. Head over to YouTube. Just search for Stu. I'll be the first one there. Subscribe and hit the bell for notifications. And subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. And don't forget to piss people off at the polls with your authentic T-shirt with a simple message. Learn, then vote. The order is important. Available now at learnthenvote.com. Well, I can't wait for Donald Trump to denounce white supremacy all over again. Can you? It's time to get the claims about Charlottesville out of the way once and for all. Let's do very fine people. Stu does America. We have a debate this week where Donald Trump will square off against Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. And also, was it Kristen Welker? the moderator from NBC News. At least that's how these things have gone so far. And if the past is any indication, we will spend about 20% of the debate watching Kristen Welker try to get Donald Trump to denounce white supremacy. Again, if Trump does this, he will have done it for the 11th frillionth time, to borrow a phrase from my friend Dana Lash. Most of this goes back to the inaccurately titled Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. While responding to a murder related to the rally, Trump said this. You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And that's where the entire incident has been boiled down to. But does that make any sense? The accusations surrounding this number, uh, really honestly, all the way up to a million, two billion accusations, maybe 11 trillion accusations. But let me try to summarize them. Number one, Trump will not denounce white supremacy. Number two, Trump will not denounce white supremacists. Number three, Trump was equating white supremacists with peaceful protesters. Well, let's look back at what actually happened. The Unite the Right rally was populated by a bunch of white supremacist groups claiming to be on the right, though one could be forgiven for not understanding how so many groups with the words socialist and workers party would be considered on the right. I suppose that's another point for another day, though. On August 12th at 1.45 p.m. Eastern, one of the white supremacists rammed his car into the protesters, murdering 32-year-old Heather Heyer. An hour and 45 minutes later, Donald Trump made a statement condemning the violence. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. So... We want to get the situation straightened out in Charlottesville, and we want to study it. And we want to see what we're doing wrong as a country where things like this can happen. Now, normally the president doesn't comment on every murder that occurs in the country. But he made this statement and was hammered for it because he didn't specifically call out white supremacists. Keep in mind, we're less than two hours from the murder. We have an alleged attacker, but he's just some random person at this point. While it would make sense that he was a white supremacist, we didn't know all the facts at that moment. Usually, in a case like this, a public official would denounce the situation generally without giving specifics. The left certainly seems to like this approach when it's applied to Islamic extremism. 
But Trump actually did denounce racism, of course, by saying we we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence. Is denouncing hatred and bigotry really all that different from denouncing white supremacy? Trump also went on to say this. Above all else, we must remember this truth. No matter our color, creed, religion, or political party, we are all Americans first. Do white supremacists believe that? While not being specific with the individual accused in a developing case, he's specifically denouncing the views of white supremacy. So our first accusation is false. Trump does does denounce white supremacy right away. But this is where the uproar really begins. It's not good enough to denounce white supremacy. Why isn't he denouncing white supremacists? Now, does the press really believe he's not denouncing white supremacists? Of course not. But they see a hole in his response where they can act like they're horrified with plausible deniability. This has been a hallmark of the media in the Trump era. So they run to the cameras and say, Donald Trump refused to denounce white supremacists. Why? Is he afraid of calling out his own supporters? Is he a white supremacist himself? Why won't he denounce them specifically? So the next day, the president comes out and specifically denounces them, releasing a clarifying statement from the White House. Quote, the president said very strongly in his statement yesterday that he condemns all forms of violence, bigotry and hatred. And of course, that includes white supremacists, the KKK, neo-Nazi and all extremist groups. He called for national unity and bringing all Americans together. Now, this is just speculation. But I bet President Trump dictated that statement directly because no public relations expert in the world would use the phrase the president said very strongly other than him, especially in a written statement. So for any honest questioner, you'd think that would be it. If he really was trying to avoid denouncing white supremacists, he wouldn't release a statement on record denouncing white supremacists. That's our second accusation. Trump did denounce white supremacists by name. However, then the goalposts moved again. Now the statement wasn't good enough. He had to address it himself on camera. Now, as we are all aware, Trump is a well-known butcher of the English language. The problem with his off-the-cuff reaction initially is that he didn't hit every group specifically enough. Okay. So he gathers his team and he says, all right, put me on camera with the teleprompter to make sure that I hit every little part of this perfectly. That happens on August 14th, two days later. Racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, Mm neo-Nazis, white supremacists, Mm -hmm. and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. Okay. Now he's denounced white supremacy and white supremacists on camera just in case anyone was actually confused about it. Where to move the goalposts now? Well, now the press started complaining that he was just reading a statement from a teleprompter. It wasn't from his heart. This critique was notably missing from the entire Obama presidency. So then Trump addressed this issue in an impromptu press conference, and it was in that press gathering where he said this. You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And that is where the narrative exists to this day. So let's pick it apart. Was the president saying that some of the Nazis were very fine people? No. 
We know this for certain. Trump literally tells you who he's talking about in the same press conference. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. And what Trump is obviously saying here is that you can't paint everyone who opposes the removal of these statues as white supremacists. To do this, he specifically separates them into two groups. One, very fine people, which the press is treating unfairly, and another separate group, group number two, neo-Nazis and white nationalists, which the president specifically says should be condemned totally. There is no other way to read this. All you can do if you're the press or the Biden campaign, as if they're different groups, all you can do is cut out the other parts of the press conference and hope people don't check. Again, let me point out how completely disingenuous the media is here. When Trump says white supremacists should be condemned totally, this is the follow-up question from the reporter. So I just understand what you were saying. You were saying the press has treated white nationalists unfairly. No. I just understand what you were saying. No. Sir, I don't understand what you're saying. Were you saying that the press has treated white nationalists unfairly? I, I don't understand what you're saying. No, apparently you don't. You really, you really didn't understand that one. Really? You thought condemning white supremacists meant that they were being treated unfairly? Of course they didn't actually believe that. They're looking for this viral moment. And unfortunately, they got it. I'm not arguing this is a master course in crisis PR by the president. He shouldn't bother with the, with the point about both sides in this moment. There's no upside to it. But what he's doing here, essentially, he's standing up for you. About 80 percent of Republicans and about half of independents oppose removing Confederate statues from public property. The president is simply saying that the average person who doesn't want history removed from the public square should be separated from white supremacists. Now, you might say perhaps that he should have been even more clear about everything. Maybe he should have said it more than once. Well, lucky for you, he did. I've condemned neo-Nazis. I've condemned many different groups, but not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. Now, you might say, oh, that wasn't enough. I need him to do it again. Well, guess what? He did it again. There were people in that rally, and I looked the night before. If you look, they were people protesting very quietly the taking down of the statue of Robert E. Lee. I'm sure in that group there were some bad ones. The following day, it looked like they had some rough, bad people neo-Nazis, white nationalists, whatever you want to call them. But you had a lot of people in that group that were there to innocently protest and very legally protest. Donald Trump clearly on multiple occasions during the same press conference specifically outlined that he was not talking about white supremacists when he was talking about very fine people. He was specifically talking about people who were not white supremacists. Finally, 
What about the idea that Trump was equating white supremacists with the peaceful protesters? Was there really violence on both sides, as Trump claimed? Well, the counter-protest groups that were there were portrayed by the media as lovable, huggable groups of peace. They were largely composed of hardcore left-wing revolutionary groups, groups like the Revolutionary Communist Party, the industrial workers of the world, anti-racist action, the uh, the Workers' World Party, the Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council, and, of course, more well-known names today like Black Lives Matter and Antifa. No one in these groups murdered anyone at this event, but they have murdered plenty of other people at other events. And there were numerous violent encounters at these protests instigated by the counter-protesters. And we know with certainty that reporters were completely aware of it. How do we know this? Because one of the reporters got punched in the face by a counter-protester. Sorry, please. Can you put that away? I understand. Can you please put that away? Hey, look. How peaceful. That's Taylor Lorenz, the reporter then from The Hill, being assaulted. Another Richmond photojournalist was also assaulted and had his head wrapped in bandages following a nasty cut that I won't show you. There was violence on both sides. There were bad people on both sides. There were good people on both sides. Trump did denounce racism. He did denounce white supremacy. He did denounce white supremacists. And he did denounce these groups by name over and over again. There must be no tolerance for anti-Semitism in America or for any form of religious or racial hatred. We are a country that stands united in condemning hate and evil in all of its very ugly forms. We want our country to be a place where every child from every background can grow up free from fear, innocent of hatred, and surrounded by love, opportunity, and hope. Racism is evil, and those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. Over and over and over again. He did it at the first debate, and again at the town hall last week, and you know what? He's going to waste all of our time doing it again Thursday night. Yes, sometimes Trump is his own worst enemy on this kind of stuff. Sometimes he lets the media bait him into a fight when he should just keep it simple. But there is no doubt that he did denounce all the right groups in his multiple statements following Charlottesville over and over again. When a campaign is intentionally deleting the context of a quote and using it in commercials like Joe Biden is now, It's supposed to be the job of the media to call them out. But for that to happen, we need an honest media who cares about the truth. Let me know if you find one. Have you checked out the social dilemma on Netflix yet? It's terrifying. 
I don't know. Part of me wishes I didn't see it because I don't want to know this stuff. It's a terrifying look into how big tech companies are using our data against us. So do what I did. Put a layer of extra protection around your data with ExpressVPN. When you run ExpressVPN on your device, it hides your IP address, which websites can use to personally identify you. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and to sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your uh, internet data uh, to keep you safe from hackers and prying eyes. Many VPNs slow down your internet, but not ExpressVPN. It's incredibly fast and easy to use. It's honestly seamless. Uh, just tap one button and you're protected. If you don't like the idea of tech companies exploiting your personal information, then visit expressvpn.com slash stew right now. Uh, there you can get three extra months of VPN for free. It's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash stew to protect your data. Make sure to use the slash stew part of the address because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Expressvpn.com slash stew to learn more. Returning to the program tonight, environmental expert and author Michael Schellenberger. His latest book is a must-read, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Michael, thanks for coming on the program again. Hey, thanks for having me back, Stu. Um, I'm interested. I wanted to talk to you about, as we're going through kind of election season here, uh, you know, I've been watching the debates, and in pretty much every conversation, particularly with Trump, but all over, is a conversation about what to do with the environment. It's always going to be part of these things. One claim that's brought up over and over again is this idea that we we are showing what we're doing is so catastrophic with global warming, the way we're handling it, because of all of the extra fires we're having. We're having fires all over California. It's burning to the ground. This is because of global warming. Is that true? Well, it's it's not true, basically. I mean, the. Climate change is contributing to warmer temperatures and the warmer temperatures are contributing to a longer fire season and and a larger area where wood is drying out for longer periods of time. But what's not true and what's grossly misleading is the idea that these high intensity fires that we've been experiencing in California or the extent of the fires are caused by climate change. So climate change is a factor, but let me say it to, to let me explain it this way. You could be having these high intensity fires without climate change, and you can have climate change without these high intensity fires. So climate mm-hmm. change is a is neither a um, necessary nor sufficient condition for these high intensity fires. By contrast, the accumulation of wood fuel is both necessary and sufficient. And the reason we know that is that there are a number of well-managed forests in California where they have kept the woody debris down, they have not allowed the accumulation of wood fuel, and the big high-intensity fires turned into low-intensity fires when they arrived in these well-managed forests. And so you have to remember, in most of the California forests, we have like five times more wood fuel than existed historically. So that's why you have these big Mm. fires, why they burn so hot and why they burn the tops of the trees. That's fascinating. So when, because I had not even heard of that, that's so that's, when you say well-managed, because I hear forest management thrown around a lot by people, you know, who are saying, uh, you know, global warming isn't the cause of this. What does that mean to, to manage a forest well? Well, it depends a little bit on the forest. Mostly the fires that we've been talking about, we're talking about in the mountain forests. 
there's not really a lot of forest management that's required on the shrubland forests or the fires that you see, the forest fires that you see in places like Malibu or the oak woodlands. In those places, we really just want to prevent um, fires from starting and put them out very quickly because we have too many for too many fires there. Most of the places we're talking about are like the mountain forests, the Sierra Nevada forests that people are familiar with. There, what you want to do is either have prescribed burns or some selective thinning where you're going into the forest and using chainsaws and trucks to manually remove the woody debris. And in a lot of the well-managed forests, you're doing both, but it's not rocket science. We can have our forests. Our forests can survive and be healthy. In fact, they can be much healthier. They should be much healthier than they are now, but we need to concentrate on the things that matter. And that means reducing all of that woody debris, all that wood fuel that's been allowed to accumulate over the last century. I feel like there's a lot of examples like this where global warming could be a factor to make it, you know, maybe a few percent worse. Uh, it could be a, a considerable uh, accelerant in some ways to some of these problems. But there are more simple, pragmatic solutions instead of trying to control the, glo the global temperature that can help it so much more. I feel like you see that with disease in, in, you know, in Africa, and we see this with all sorts of different um, uh, examples. I mean, there's the thought, I guess, that if you solve the global warming thing, it's going to solve all these problems. But these problems existed long before that. Yeah, exactly. You said it just right. In other words... If there were no climate change or if we were to go back to temperatures of what they were 100 years ago, we would certainly still be having these high intensity fires. Would there be as many? Would they cover as large of an area? Maybe not, but it wouldn't be as huge of a difference as if we didn't have all that wood fuel accumulated in the, in the forest in the first place. So you're exactly right. It's similar to flooding. Okay, so I might get two to three more inches, thanks to global warming, of rainfall every year in Berkeley, California, where I live. But we have flood management system. We have this elaborate system of gutters and, 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 and ravines, and we have a whole system to remove the water from around our houses so our houses don't flood. In the Congo, in Central Africa, where the book, a lot of the book takes place, Apocalypse Never, if you they already have flooding they don't have a flood control system so the the difference between flooding and no flooding is whether you have a flood management system it's not whether the, it's not the two to three You're inches right. from climate change same thing with forests the difference is the accumulation of wood fuel or not the accumulation of wood fuel it's forest management or no forest management it's not modestly higher temperatures modestly longer fire season. That's not the big difference maker in either case. I think that might be one thing that's bothersome about this debate generally is that, I mean, I talk to people who I respect and are smart and, and I just say to me, look, the global warming thing, I just want to help the planet. It's not hurting anybody. I want to help the planet. I, I want to do I want to do things that that will benefit the planet. And that's a great instinct. It's obviously something overall we would praise. But look at that example you just gave is a great example. We are we're throwing off innovation, we're throwing off development, we're throwing off civilization in this attempt to try to control this problem in a way that is going to be very difficult to control. And we're taking, you know, we're not allowing, you know, certain countries to develop fossil fuels when that would make a massive difference in their actual public health, as opposed to maybe a slight I mean, an immeasurable amount of global warming savings by them developing clean energy. Um, I just feel like is that is that the right way to think of this? Because I think there's a there's a there's a 
there's a there's a there's a, a battle between like do-gooders that it, in a in a real authentic way and what is pragmatically going to help these situations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously people in the Congo need more fossil fuels. They use wood as their primary source of energy. They need petroleum to power their vehicles. They need natural gas to cook and heat with. So this idea that they shouldn't have fossil fuels is really wrong in both factually and morally. And that just goes for development overall. I mean, if you're concerned about climate change, then you should favor natural gas and nuclear. But some of the most alarmist people about climate change oppose both natural gas and nuclear. (laughs) So the solution to climate change long term is everybody lives like the French. The French haven't sacrificed their quality of life. They enjoy a very high quality of life. They just get 75% of their electricity from nuclear power, which doesn't produce any carbon emissions. So, right, when you hear people saying that we all have to be poor or we have to go back to all being farmers or we have to prevent poor countries from developing, you're right to detect that they have an agenda that doesn't have anything to do with climate change or with the natural environment. It's it's usually about some ideology or what I talk about in the book, the ideas of a discredited 18th century economist named Thomas Malthus. It's it's pretty dark stuff. It's not in the interest of human beings. It's not in the interest of the natural environment. Um, do you think there's any hope for nuclear? I mean, I, it, it does seem that, you know, every once in a while, uh, you know, a Republican candidate will throw it around. I think it gets some people excited, but it doesn't seem like we ever get anywhere with it. Is there a future for nuclear power? Oh, sure. Of course. I, I To paraphrase Churchill, I think we will do nuclear power after exhausting all other options. <laughs> Nuclear is the, you know, it's a it's a major capital investment, so it's very hard to build these plants. It just takes a long time, especially for countries that have already industrialized. We're a little bit out of practice. Nuclear energy is growing in developing economies. It's growing very quickly in China. It's growing quickly in Russia. I mean, what I worry about is the Chinese and the Russians are dominating the global market for nuclear energy. So it, when, it, you know, the, the couple dozen, over 25 countries around the world that are building nuclear power plants, only China and Russia are really offering nuclear power to those countries. Well, the line between soft power and hard power runs directly through nuclear energy. It's a special technology because it's a dual-use technology. You can make our most powerful weapon out of it, or you can make our cleanest source of electricity. That's not a technology we should cede to China and Russia. It's dangerous. America's always put a priority on being the world leader on nuclear energy, and we're dangerously ceding that role to our greatest geopolitical rivals who simply do not have any commitment or respect for for, for democracy and human rights. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing that we have not been able to, to make more progress on that, I think, in the debate, especially with that point. I mean, it is, it's a really important thing we should not be ceding to the Russians and the Chinese. Um, I want to hit you with one more thing here on, as we're going through this debate, one of the things a lot of people talk about is the Green New Deal. It's kind of the, I don't know, the, the, the sexy environmental uh, proposal of the left at the moment. Uh, pre- uh, Vice President Biden says he's not for it. It's on his website kind of that he is uh, for it or something similar to it. Is there any difference between what was proposed and what Biden is actually uh, putting on the table? Yeah, I thought that was interesting that Biden distanced himself from the name, and you're right, he's basically proposing $2 trillion for renewables and energy efficiency programs that cost more than they return. Uh, We've actually 
the U.S. government invested a huge amount into these weatherization programs, and the studies that came back showed that they weren't worth it, but they want to pursue it anyway. So not much a difference in terms of the content, but I thought it was interesting that he's moving away from the name. I think people associate that with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a kind of extremism that he doesn't want to be a part of. Really, what we need is a green nuclear deal. I mean, we need reliable energy. We should be competing with the Russians and Chinese on nuclear. Solar panels are kind of ridiculous. I mean, you're basically just, if we do solar in the United States, we're basically unboxing solar panels made in China, shipped here. It doesn't create good jobs. It doesn't create high paying jobs. Whereas nuclear plants, they can run for 80 years. They're often employing three generations of people. They're, people in the nuclear industry are paid more than people in other energy sectors because it's an advanced technology, because it does require a significant more or some amount of more of education. So for me, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with making a national commitment to energy, but we're making it to the wrong technology. Solar and wind increase the cost of electricity wherever they're used at scale. California, we saw electricity prices rise six times more than the rest of the United States. Germany saw its electricity prices rise 50% over the last decade. And they required three to 400 times more land than either nuclear or natural gas. So from a natural environment perspective, a national security perspective, and an economic perspective, the emphasis should just be overwhelmingly on nuclear power. It's in our national interest, and we're ignoring it, I think, at our peril. Well, I still blame uh, Meryl Streep and The Simpsons uh, for much of this problem. I, <laughs> I don't know what it is. We can't get over ourselves on this. It seems to be so obvious. And I can't imagine what the next generations of, if we were pursuing this the entire time, we wouldn't be going back to the stuff we built in the 70s. Then These next generation uh, examples of nuclear power would be tremendously, uh, would be a huge difference maker. Would it not? I mean, is there something, and I'm going to have a minute left here, Michael. I'd love to have more time with you. But it, is, there, is there a big difference maker coming in nuclear power that could really change the way we think about it? Well, like you said, it's already happened. I mean, we have this incredibly good design. We're building two new reactors in Georgia. We have better fuels, the fuels that are more advanced fuels that also add to the safety so, I mean, yeah, you're right. Our nuclear plants are much better. We also know how to operate them better. You know, it's, it's nuclear is the exact same thing with uh, jet travel. So if you saw, if you look at these graphs, you can see jet travel goes up and up and up during the 20th century and accidents go down, 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 despite all these additional miles traveled. That's because the pilots and everybody involved in jet travel just got so much better at making jet travel safer. safer. Exact same thing with nuclear. Our plants have gotten better, but also the people, these amazing American men and women that run these plants have just gotten so much better at their jobs. Mm. Michael Schellenberger, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. The uh, book is Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. It is legitimately a must read. You have to have this information. Michael, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Stu. All right, back in a second. So Jeffrey Tubin is uh, in the news. We have an update on that story. I don't feel good about bringing it to you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yesterday, we uh, reported that uh, Jeffrey Tubin, the CNN legal analyst, was on a call with reporters at New Yorker. I think the New Yorker. Yeah, New Yorker. He works there, too. And they were doing some sort of uh, election simulation. And uh, there was an incident where he uh, exposed himself on the Zoom call. Now, 
my initial reaction was this idiot left his laptop open and I don't know, started getting changed and didn't realize his camera was on. Eh, I kind of wish that's where this story ended. Unfortunately not, as you may have heard. Uh, he, um, he, he says, I made an embarrassingly stupid mistake believing I was off camera. I believed I was not visible on Zoom. I thought no one on Zoom could see me. I thought I had muted the Zoom video. I apologize to my wife, family, friends, and coworkers. Again, like you don't, you don't make that kind of apology if all you did was you're getting changed in the background and someone saw you by mistake, right? Well, we now know that apparently um, this is the situation. It was not an election simulation. It was a stimulation of another word that rhymes with election. Uh, during the simulation, uh, uh, he, was the, he was playing the courts. And this is another strange part of the story that has not been talked about enough. The Democrats just keep simulating what will happen if all society breaks down in the middle of this election. What do they know that we don't know? They keep like, you know, we just happened to run another simulation about what would happen if the military took over the White House. Like, what is happening here? Anyway, um, so at one point, there was a break for those playing Democrats and Republicans to strategize together. That's when sources told Vice they saw Tubin doing things to himself. Uh, he apparently was on the call, then angled the, uh, the laptop down and, and did things to himself. After a few minutes, he called back in, apparently unaware that his camera had been kept on for at least part of the sex act. Spokesperson for The New Yorker said, Jeffrey Tubin has been suspended while we investigate the, the matter. Uh, CNN, where he also works, uh, says that Tubin will be taking time off from the cable network where he was a senior legal analyst. Jeff Tubin has asked for some time off while he deals with a personal issue, which we have granted. Can I just pause here and ask you an honest question? Does that treatment come for Republicans at any point? If a Republican did something like this, would they get a suspension pending investigation plus some time off for a personal matter? Seems unlikely. From what I understand, the the women who were on the call with him just kind of just just acted like it didn't happen. You know, to him, at least uh, he found out later. Very embarrassed. And, you know, you, you feel embarrassed for the guy, I guess. Uh, Tubin. Um, has had some other issues, had a uh, love child with a, a lawyer, um, Casey Greenfield, who was working at CNN at the time. Tubin was married since, since 1986. Um, and, you know, look, you know, personal problems are personal problems. But you just kind of wish uh, that Jeffrey Tubin could, I don't know, like really in the middle of a Zoom call? You can't wait till afterward? Was, it, was, was the election that sexy? Hard to imagine. I will say uh, Jeffrey Tubin has been on television a lot, though, talking about the uh, moral mistakes of others as it as it goes with this type of activity at work. Here's some of his highlights. If you sexual assault, sexually assault someone in high school, your life should be ruined. The accusation is one of, I mean, very serious, like pawing and, and touching and, and gross behavior. I mean, these accusations do not tend to come in single uh, examples. I have a very sophisticated view of this. The women always lose. How about the lives of the women who were sexually assaulted in high school? When Donald Trump talks about any sort of sexual harassment, sexual violence, is there is utterly no concern for the woman. It's always 1957, and he's the head of the Rat Pack. Every night, I cry myself to sleep over the fate of white men in America. <laughs> utterly, guys, utterly. I uh, can't wait to see what Donald Trump does 
at his next campaign rally with this guy after he's been critical of him for years. This is not going to work out well for Jeff. Um, Speaking of absolutely horrific things on the Internet, AOC has started her own Twitch channel. Uh, She's going to uh, stream Among Us, and uh, and, and that's kind of like Secret Hitler kind of uh, as a game. You're trying to unearth the person who's who's uh, the imposter, I guess. Um, Never played it myself. I will say I will never play it now because I know AOC plays it. Now, uh, I, I guess it's a pretty fun game. A lot of people like it. I will say uh, it's interesting to uh, to see this happen. AOC seems to really be going after the gamer community. She had this other story we brought to you about her making her own island in, in a game. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that uh, Trump actually was put into office uh, with a big contingency, uh, contingency of gamers. I mean, a, you know, Steve Bannon famously targeted them, thought they were underrepresented. AOC's trying to do the same thing here. Um, and if you do see AOC in the street, you can remind her she's stealing Steve Bannon's shtick. Uh, and Ben Shapiro uh, wants the mainstream media to uh, a- ask a question to Joe Biden about the Burisma report. He says it's not that too much to ask. To ask a question about a report from the nation's oldest newspaper. You know, it doesn't seem like too much to ask. That's a good point by Ben. Maybe someone should ask, I don't know, a question about it. I think one reporter kind of screamed something at Biden and Biden, uh, you know, as he was like going to an airplane and he acted him, he acted as if he assaulted him. I mean, you know, Biden's not used to getting tough questions. I doubt we'll see much in the uh, debate on, uh, on Thursday. We saw nothing in the town hall, and that was after the story broke. Again, this is the nation's, I think Ted Cruz on the radio show today said that it was the nation's fourth largest newspaper by circulation. And they're just able to completely, completely ignore it. It is a, it's the type of thing that you don't get if you're on the other side of the aisle. You don't get the suspension. You don't get the, oh, well, he's taking some time off for family difficulties. You don't get the, I get to, I get to completely ignore a major publication's uh, accusations. Those things don't happen to you if you're on one side of the aisle. It's nice to be on the left, I guess. I still don't want to be there, but it's nice to be on. I guess it's a good, it's a good life if you want to lower yourself to it. Back in a second. Tommy John. I freaking love Tommy John. It's true. Uh, Tommy John is awesome. It's the most comfortable underwear you can possibly have. Breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, so it moves with you. I will say, they not only have uh, underwear, they have great undershirts, they have really nice uh, like lounge shorts and lounge, like you know, I don't want to say sweatpants, I don't know what they're called, but they're like lounge pants. They're awesome to wear around the house. It's so comfortable. It's the best stuff I own. Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. The legs never, uh, you know, ride up. You're covered with their no wedgie guarantee. That's a big thing. And their best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free guarantee, means there's no risk at all. Try Tommy John. If you haven't tried it before, if you're like me, and you've heard 9 million Tommy John commercials on like podcasts and, and, and uh, on TV and radio, and you're like, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know. I, it just seems like, I don't know, how good could it be? It is that great. 
I, I, I honestly love it. Tommy John, if you don't love them, they're free. Get uh, much more comfortable at TommyJohn.com slash stew. Save 20% on your first order. 20% right now at TommyJohn.com slash stew. The slash stew part of the address is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. TommyJohn.com slash stew. TommyJohn.com slash stew. Some bipartisan news for you. 51% in the U.S. say they want Coney Barrett uh, seated on the Supreme Court. That comes from Rasmussen. Um, 84% of Democrats are against the Barrett nomination, which is the highest on record. But that means 16% are for it, or at least all, uh, up to 16% are for it. And that's a wonderful thing. Joe Biden is considering ex-Ohio Governor John Kasich for a cabinet spot. I mean, what this world needs right now is more John Kasich, right? Who's with me? No one, huh? Not even you, John Kasich. No one is with me when I say that. Huh. I'll give you another one here. Um, this is, you know, you, you, you watch a political commercial and it's like hard fought and it's like, you know, uh, brass knuckles to the face type of political ad. And you're like, OK, that's the most New York political ad ever. This, I would say, is the most Utah political ad ever. Watch I'm Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other to be your next governor. And while I think you should vote for me. Yeah, but but really you should vote for me. There are some things we both agree on. We can debate issues without degrading each other's character. We can disagree without hating each other. And win or lose in Utah, we work together. So let's show the country that there's a better way. My name's Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. And we we approve approve this message. message. How dare you? First of all, how dare you? Uh, I look. It's a nice little. It's a nice little message. I, I think it's. Uh, it's. It feels foreign, though, doesn't it? It feels as if that was from like 1952, uh, from another country. I. I <laughs> You know, look, I, I think it's the right thing to do to be able to not hate your opponents. I, I don't I don't like that particular brand of politics. Uh, I don't you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I get why people do it, though. I mean, it's really important. And these things, these issues are really important. And you're threatening people's livelihoods. You're threatening the, the way that they uh, live their lives. Um, but it is nice to see this occasionally. Hopefully it's legitimate and, and not just some silly stunt. I don't know anything about this race. My guess is the Republican probably has a comfortable lead there in Utah. So not much risk going on there. But a nice little moment. We're back in a second. Love getting your reviews on iTunes. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. COVID should be thankful. Stu is so amazing that COVID-19 should be grateful and honored to have been able to occupy his body, then get thrashed by the supernatural strength of Stu's immune system. Stubergear doing his part to save the world from COVID-19 in his role as immunity man. Whatevs. Five freaking stars. Uh, like this stupid show. Love Stu and his opinions. The stout defense of the laws of the land. The hilarious points of uh, contest in opposition to the crazy progressive leftists. What a great show. Five freaking stars. Thank you very much. Stu is a thick soup, not a name. Stu is the Benjamin Button of podcasts. He's 58 years old and hasn't aged since I started listening to him 20 years ago. Stupid show. Whatever. Five freaking stars. Thank you very much. Consistency. Stu, you're brilliant. 
Thanks for the consistency you bring as the world goes completely crazy. Five stars so everyone knows that I love your stupid show. Thank you so much. Five freaking stars. Uh, whatever. I mean, I'm listening to the true talent. I've been wanting to, waiting for the true talent behind Glenn Beck to get his own show. But instead, we get Stu in this stupid show. Five freaking stars. Thank you very much. It's whatever. Great. The only rating that's available for this stupid show. Five freaking stars. That's correct. Thank you so much for all of your reviews on iTunes. Please subscribe, rate, and review. You can check out all the merch at stewdoesmerch.com. We will see you tomorrow.